Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that is brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. Today's lesson is week number 16, 1 Kings chapters 8 and 9. Well, we will finally finish 1 Kings chapter 8 today. And we'll get a little start into chapter 9. However, in some ways, we're exiting it a little sooner than I would prefer to. Like a few other uh, places in the Bible, this is one of those chapters where we could camp here for a long time and still not fully explore the depths of all of its contents. Now we're going to reread verses 54 to the end of the chapter and discuss those passages shortly. But first of all, I feel compelled to revisit verses 27 through 30 for just a few minutes. Because within these passages we have one of the wisest men who ever lived. Utterly bewildered in trying to understand and express just who God is. The nature of His substance. How to describe Him. How to explain in words and human thought this mysterious reality of God and His presence. So open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 8. We're going to read verses uh, 27 through 30. Uh, That's... um, Page 378 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. But can God actually live on earth? Why heaven itself, even the heaven of heavens, can't contain you? So how much less this house I've built? Even so, Adonai, my God, pay attention to your servant's prayer and plea. Listen to the cry and prayer that your servant is praying before you today, that your eyes will be open towards this house night and day, towards the place concerning which you said, My name will be there. To listen to the prayer your servant will pray towards this place. Yes, listen to the plea of your servant and also that of your people Israel when they pray towards this place. Here in heaven where you live and when you hear, forgive. Solomon's frame of reference is that while the temple is called Yehovah's house, God's bait or bait, all right, in Hebrew, God's dwelling place, that in fact Solomon inherently knows that God does not actually live there, but rather he lives in heaven. And yet, the idea of God living in heaven also isn't fully satisfactory to Shlomo's mind, because if heaven is a definable place, it can't possibly be sufficient to house the limitless Creator. Despite all this, the Lord's presence at the temple is undeniable because it was literally visible in a cloud that suddenly appeared inside the Echal, the sanctuary. And even more, Solomon understood that God didn't leave heaven to journey to the temple in Jerusalem to visit his people Israel. 
Now I bring this up because it addresses a challenge for the church and for Judaism that when dealt with poorly, and as I regret that in my estimation it has been, it often tends towards humanizing God. Making Him more human inevitably tars Him with some of our human flaws and characteristics. It places upon Him our human expectations as though He was elected the, the Prime Minister of Heaven and Earth. That He's not the self-existent God of everything. In doing so, we have come to feel freer to question God's decisions and reckon that He must think logically. That He must feel as we do only at an even greater level. And in the end, the truth is that the more we try to describe God, the more we diminish who He is. The great Jewish sage and philosopher Maimonides lived around 1200 A.D. And he's known among the Jewish community as the Rambam. And he thought about this issue long and hard. And no doubt Solomon's prayer at the temple dedication ceremony had much to do with his fascination of the problem of defining the God of Israel. Maimonides suggested that one way to view this matter is as what he called negative theology. And the idea is that God's attributes expressed in the negative are His true attributes. In other words, at the same time that we can say that God is just, we must also say that God is not unjust. While we can say that God is wise we must also say that God is not unwise. Now that may sound like a lot of double talk until we grasp that what Maimonides is saying is that unlike humans, the foundational traits of God have no opposites in Him. If you remember back to Genesis in chapter 6, We had a lesson that included what I call the principle of opposites. That is a a fundamental, it's an immutable trait of our universe. It says that God created our universe based on a foundational law that everything in and of our universe will have an opposite. If there's an up, there's a down. If there's a near, there's a far. If there's a light, if there's light, there's darkness. If there's male, there's female. If there's good, there's evil. If there's birth, there's death. On and on and on. The Rambam tells us that while we we can define God best by means of expressing His attributes in the negative, we can't do the same with humans. 
For instance, while we can say with assurance that God is knowing and must also say that God is not unknowing, we can't say the same thing regarding any human trait about any human. That is, while I can say that humans are, are, are knowing, I can't say that humans are not un, unknowing, for in fact, humans can be both knowing and unknowing, depending on the individual and on the circumstance. In other words, God is such a holy other being than humans, that while we humans are essentially containers fleshly containers of opposites, God is not. A human being's fundamental nature is as a creature composed of opposites. A human can exist and then not exist. A human can be powerful and then become weak. A human can be good and then be bad. A human can be here and then be there. A human can be wise and then be foolish. But none of this is true of God. And this is because He is not a container of opposites. He is what He is. Or as He said in the burning bush to Moses, I am what I am. And therefore He's not a man that He should change. Let me tell you something. God has no capacity not to exist. God is unable to be weak. God is incapable of being foolish. God is not here or there. He hovered over the deep of creation. He ruled over His angels in heaven. And He was present at the outer edges of the universe for the birth of every star all at the same time. Not because He chose to be, but because that is His fundamental nature. Therefore, Mamadides writes that we cannot know anything about God per se. God's essential character is completely incomprehensible to mortal minds. Human beings at best can only describe what God does. What He does in this world. But we'll never be able to discern what God is. And that is precisely what the church has insisted upon doing for centuries. And it's why the doctrine of the Trinity was invented. It's not that there isn't truth contained within the Trinitarian concept. It's that we have taken something out of its biblical context and now confidently use it to make ourselves think that we now know what God is when we do not because we cannot. We're not satisfied with only observing what God does or experiencing Him personally. Rather, we feel compelled and perfectly able to do the very thing we should not do. 
because our essential nature doesn't have the ability for it. And that is to define and understand what God is. This is the reason that I teach you to stop asking why when you contemplate the Lord or study God's Word and instead ask what. And the what concerns discerning what God pattern or which biblically stated God principle is at work in any given situation. You see, asking why is a good and reasonable question for trying to discover how our, how our physical temporal universe of space and time operates. But it's wholly wrong. It's self-defeating to try and discern God and His Holy Scriptures by employing why is our method of discovery. Because why implies that we can uncover and comprehend the nature of God's mind that underlies the what. Asking why makes us think that we have the right to examine and debate God's reasoning for His establishment of His principles and His laws and commandments. But the Holy Scriptures teach us that the duty of God's people is only to obey His principles and laws and commandments and to do so in a spirit of loving trust. The Rambam argues that it is inappropriate to even to employ even all the attributes ascribed to God in the Bible. We may use them in the biblical context when we come across them in the scriptures, but it is unbecoming, even perhaps sinful, to speak of God as possessing human-like characteristics. We should not remove a descriptive word from its context and then employ it as our means to define what God is. The most common of which in our age, at least, and has changed over time, is God is love. See, human language always falls short whenever speaking of God. Words become devalued and cannot hope to contain this, this cosmic mystery of God's being in His presence. Human language falters. It's utterly impotent. Although we're often so very certain, we finally captured God's essence in our fine words. If words have difficulty defining the beauty of a sunset, or the classic work of art, like Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel, how much more will words be clumsy, completely ineffectual in describing the reality of God? So contained within the wisdom that God gave to King Solomon came Shlomo's stunning admission at the temple dedication ceremony that it's utterly futile to try and understand such things as God's omnipresence. 
that Yehovah can dwell here and there and everywhere simultaneously. And yet, in the earthly sense of dwelling, not reside any place at all, but merely place his name there. So in the end, all Solomon asked for is that no matter where God's people might be, that if they will direct their prayers towards God's designated earthly place of meeting, the temple on Mount Moriah, that God will hear. He will act on those prayers in His will. The mystery of God wasn't challenged. It wasn't solved. It was just accepted. You see, that is the true scriptural definition of faith. Let's move on now and read a little bit more of chapter 8. We'll start at verse 54 and read to the end. When Shlomo had finished praying all of this prayer and plea to Adonai, he got up from in front of the altar of Adonai where he had been kneeling with his hands spread out towards heaven. He stood up, raised his voice to bless the whole community of Israel, and he said, Blessed be Adonai who has given rest to his people Israel. In accordance with everything he promised. Not one word has failed in his good promise, which he made through Moshe, his servant. May Adonai our God be with us as he was with our ancestors. May he never leave us or abandon us. In this way, he will incline our hearts towards him so that we will live according to his ways and observe his mitzvot, his laws and rulings which he ordered our fathers to obey. May these words of mine, which I have used in my plea before Adonai, be present with Adonai our God day and night so that he will uphold the cause of his servant and cause and the cause of his people Israel day by day. Then all the peoples of the earth will know that Adonai is God. There is no other. So be wholehearted with Adonai our God, living by his laws, observing his commandments as you're doing today. And then the king, together with all Israel, offered sacrifices before Adonai, for the sacrifice of peace offerings which Shlomo offered to Adonai, he offered 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. Thus the king and all the people of Israel dedicated the house of Adonai. The same day, the king consecrated the center of the courtyard in front of the house of Adonai because he had to offer the burnt offering, the grain offering, and the fat of the peace offerings there. <coughs> For the bronze altar before Adonai was too small to receive the burnt offering, the grain offering, and the fat of the peace offerings. So Shlomo celebrated the festival at that time. All Israel, a huge gathering that had come all the way from the entrance of Hamath to the Wadi of Egypt, celebrated with him before Adonai our God for seven days, and then for seven more days, fourteen in all. And on the eighth day he sent the people away. They blessed the king and they returned to their tents full of joy, glad of heart, for all the goodness Adonai had shown to David his servant and to Israel his people. 
Solomon had been in a kneeling position before God, his hands outstretched as he offered up his prayers. But now he stood to address and, and, and bless the congregation of Israel. And for reasons the sages have debated for centuries, an important happening was actually left out of this narrative in 1 Kings, but we find it recorded in 2 Chronicles. In 2 Chronicles 7.1 it says, When Shlomo had finished praying, fire came down from heaven, and it consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. Now I began the day by asking you to put away your desire to know why. As in, why did God light the altar fire and burn up these offerings rather than just allowing the fire to be lit by the priests, as usual? Instead, our question should always be what? What God pattern or, or, or principle is being employed here? And we find the answer in the book of Leviticus at the consecration of the wilderness tabernacle. In Leviticus 9, 22-24 it says, Aaron raised his hands towards the people and blessed them and came down from offering the sin offering, the burnt offering, and the peace offerings. Moses and Aaron entered the tent of meeting, came out and blessed the people, and then the glory of Adonai appeared to all the people. Fire came forth from the presence of Adonai, consuming the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. So the unchanging God, of course, consecrated Solomon's temple of stone and wood in Jerusalem in the same way. He did the portable one made of fabric and animal skins and wood at the foot of Mount Sinai. And in repeating this pattern, the people now knew that the Lord pronounced that this place, this house, was acceptable. And now, it had been holified. In fact, in verse 56, Shlomo invokes Moses' name. And he reminds the people that what is happening here is all part of the covenant that Yehovah had made with Moses 500 years earlier. May Yehovah be with us as he was with our ancestors, Solomon continues. Now how exactly, how was Yehovah with their ancestors? Solomon never addresses it because it's impossible to put to words. Suffice it to say that God was with Israel because he said he would be. And Israel's many victories over their enemies and the fact that they are now at rest in the land of Canaan, participating in this dedication celebration of a temple to Jehovah is experiential proof of God's promise of his mysterious presence of being with them. But there's another strong implication in this statement about God's presence with Israel that the rabbis have noticed. It is that it was important for the people to understand 
that now that the temple was completed and consecrated and that all of the Lord's promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob about arriving and settling in Canaan after they'd been met, that God would not leave them to themselves. So Solomon prayed aloud in front of the people that God would not abandon them or leave them because he had not done so with the patriarchs. And then finally another strong statement is made in verse 60. And we see that the concept of there being only one God over all the earth, over all mankind has begun to take root in Israel's leadership in a much more overt way than ever before. Solomon says that Israel needs to obey God. God will in turn bless Israel. And in this way, all the people of the earth will know that Jehovah is God and there is none else. Two things. We have learned that a God's name was everything to ancient people. Knowing a God's name was the key to knowing what that God's attributes were. What functions of nature he or she was in charge of. Where that God's territory was. Jehovah was to be associated not to any territory, but to the entire earth. Why? Because he's the only God in existence. Second is how important this concept ought to be to us today. See, we live in a world whereby many Christian denominations and some secular groups want all of the world's religions to get along. So we've adopted the belief that assuming there's only one God, then it's okay to use whatever name your religion might call Him. From Allah to Buddha. Solomon didn't say, okay Canaanites, just know that Baal is actually Jehovah. Okay Moabites, just apply everything you ascribe to your God Molech to Jehovah, since Jehovah is the only God. And so that means you're actually worshipping Him, you just didn't know it. The idea was not that Jehovah was some kind of universal melting pot of any and all characteristics of the gods that men could apply as they wished as long as they called God Jehovah. Rather, it was that the Holy Scriptures of the Hebrews are the divine, uh, uh, defining source of God's attributes and of expressing His deeds and His principles and His commands to humans and His name is yud heh vav There is no other God and therefore there is no other name for God. Well, the king now leads the nation and more offerings, more sacrifices, to the tune of 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. Now several classifications of offerings are listed. The chief of all offerings is the Olah. The offering that always accompanies the Olah is the Mincha. And the, also the Zevah Shalamim offering is spoken of. All the meat 
from the Olah is burned up on the altar. None of it can be used for anything else. The Mincha is an offering of produce. Some of it's burned up, the rest goes to the priests. The Zivah Shlamim has a small amount of the animal burned up and the rest goes to the worshippers and the priests for food. The part of the Shlamim that's burned up is called the Helev, all right, which is the best fat that surrounds the, the animal's organs. Generally speaking, all the meat of the Shlamim offering is used for food, for the worshipper and for the priests. Thus we see that because thousands upon thousands of people came for this dedication and they would be there for two full weeks, food was needed. So in a very practical solution, while some of the animals were completely devoted to God and thus entirely burned up to ashes, that's the Ola offerings, the far larger portion of the sacrificial animals were sanctified and then used for food for this enormous crowd. That was the Shlamim offerings. However, the sheer quantity of animals that had to be processed and offered in whole or in part on the altar meant that it was physically impossible for the great altar of burnt offering to handle it all. Thus another means of accepting these sacrifices had to be arranged and that's what's being discussed in verse 64. There's a lot of disagreement over the meaning of this passage. Some say that the king literally sanctified the courtyard and then a wood fire was built upon the floor of the courtyard and the animals were burned up there. Others say that another altar was built and thus two altars were in use. In fact, some of the sages say that what was being used at first for the main altar was the original bronze altar of Moses from the days of the wilderness tabernacle. But now Solomon had an excuse to build a second, much larger altar, and this larger altar is what found its way to the courtyard. But after the dedication ceremony, Solomon's new and larger one would be used to replace the more ancient and smaller one. Now your guess as to which of these suggestions is accurate is as good as mine. The two, the final two verses of chapter 8 actually gives us information that we discussed in the first teaching I gave you about this chapter. Verse 65 says, So Shlomo celebrated the festival at that time. The word translated to festival is in Hebrew, Chag. A Chag is a pilgrimage festival that requires all adult males of Israel to travel from wherever they might be to the temple in Jerusalem. This dedication ceremony, the dedication ceremony, is not a Chag. Therefore, this festival is something else. And in this case, it's referring to one of the three God-established biblical feasts in the Torah law, among which are Matzah, Shavuot, and 
Sukkot. And let me remind you that it is common in the New Testament and in modern Jewish conversation to call the first of these pilgrimage festivals Pesach, Passover, instead of Matzah, unleavened bread. But that's technically not correct. See, Pesach, Matzah, and Bichrim is a series of springtime feasts that occurs in rapid fire succession. Passover first, the next day is unleavened bread, the day after that's first fruits. Okay. Passover is a one day feast. Unleavened bread is a seven day feast. First fruits is a one day feast. It is the feast of unleavened bread that is the Chag, the pilgrimage festival. Not first fruits at the beginning, I rather at the Passover at the beginning, not first fruits at the end. However, a pilgrim coming to Jerusalem for the festival of matzah, which for most involved an arduous journey, naturally wanted to come a day early so that he could have his Passover lamb slaughtered by a priest, cooked in an oven in the holy city, celebrate with his brethren coming from all over the holy lands, but none of that was required. Thus we get next this cryptic comment that the gathering came and celebrated before God, meaning at the temple, for seven days, and then for seven more days, fourteen in all. And then on the eighth day, it says, the people dispersed and went home. The first seven days was the temple dedication ceremony. We know that the second seven days, which was the Chag, was Sukkot. Part of that's because there was an eighth day spoken of before they could leave. And that is the Torah ordained protocol for Sukkot. So, the throngs of people remained in Jerusalem for 15 days total. That, that must have been something to behold. No doubt they camped out for miles around the city. Let's get a little bit of a start on chapter 9. First Kings chapter 9. After Shlomo had finished building the house of Adonai, the royal palace and everything else he wanted to build for himself, Adonai appeared to Shlomo a second time as he had appeared to him in Gibon, Gibeon. And Adonai said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea that you made before me. I am consecrating this house which you built and placing my name, on, name there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. As for you, if you will live in my presence as did David your father in pureness of heart and uprightness, doing everything I have ordered you to do and observing my laws and rulings, then I will establish the throne of your rulership over Israel forever, just as I promised David your father, when I said, you will never lack a man on the throne of Israel. But if you turn away from following me, you or your children, and you don't observe my commandments and regulations which I have set before you, and you go and observe other gods, worshiping them, then I will cut off Israel from the land I have given to them. This house which I consecrated for my name I will eject from my sight. Israel will become an example to avoid an object of scorn among the peoples. 
This house now so exalted, everyone passing by will gasp in shock at the sight of it. And they will ask, why has Adonai done this to this land, to this house? But the answer will be, it's because they abandoned Adonai their God, who brought their ancestors out of the land of Egypt and took hold of other gods, worshipping, serving them. This is why Adonai brought all these calamities on them. At the end of 20 years, during which time Shlomo had built the two buildings, the house of Adonai and the royal palace, King Shlomo gave Hiram 20 cities in the land of the Galilee. Recall that Hiram, the king of Zor, had supplied Shlomo with cedar and cypress logs and with all the gold Shlomo wanted. Hiram came over from Zor to see the cities Shlomo had given him, but he wasn't satisfied with them. He said, What kind of cities are these which you have given me, my brother? So they have been called the land of Kabul, good for nothing, till this day. Following is the account of the forced labor levied by King Shlomo for building the house of Adonai, his own palace, the Milo, the wall of Jerusalem, the cities of Hatzor, Megiddo, and Gezer. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had gone up, taken Gezer, and burned it to the ground and killed the Canaanites living in the city. Then he had given it as a dowry for his daughter, Shlomo's wife. So Shlomo rebuilt Gezer. He also built Lower Beit Haron, Baalat, Tadmor in the desert in the land as well as the cities that Shlomo had for storing supplies, the cities for his chariots, the cities for his horsemen, the other buildings Shlomo wanted to build for himself in Jerusalem, in the Lebanon and throughout the land he ruled. All the people still left from the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites who were not part of the people of Israel that is their descendants remaining after them in the land whom the people of Israel were not able to destroy completely from them Shlomo levied his forced laborers as it is to this day but Shlomo did not raise any of his forced labor from the people of Israel rather they were the soldiers his servants his administrators and commanders and the officials in charge of his chariots and horsemen <coughs> there were 550 chief officers over Shlomo's work in charge of the workers Pharaoh's daughter came up from the city of David to her house, which Shlomo had built for her. After that, he built the Milo. Three times a year, Shlomo offered burnt offerings and peace offerings on the altar, which he had built for Adonai, offering incense with them on the altar before Adonai. So he finished the house. King Shlomo built a fleet of ships in Etzion Gever by Elot on the shore of the Sea of Suf in the land of Edom. Hiram sent some of his own servants, experienced sailors who understood the sea, to serve with Shlomo's servants. They went to Ophir, took, gold from, uh, took from their gold 14 tons of it, which they brought back to King Shlomo. The events of the opening verses took place at least 13 years after the temple dedication ceremony of chapter 8. Because we're told in chapter 7 that it took Solomon 13 years to build his palace and he didn't start counting that time until the temple was completed. And in a like manner, meaning in a dream, 
God visited Shlomo as he had near the beginning of the king's reign at Gibeon. Now no doubt Solomon was in his palace when this visitation occurred. The the tabernacle and the priesthood were no longer located in Gibeon. So there would be no reason for Solomon to be there. And in many ways this visitation from Yehovah is connected with his first one. In the first visit, God had asked Shlomo what he wanted from him. And Solomon asked for wisdom to rule his people. God was pleased with this request and so he granted it, but as a bonus, he gave Shlomo that which he did not ask for, great wealth. Thus in verse 1 of chapter 9, we're told that after... Solomon had not only built the beautifully appropriate temple, but also a magnificent palace that was such a wonder that other potentates came just to see it, that Solomon had built everything else that his heart had desired. The sages point out that while the temple and the palace were important and necessary, by saying everything else that his heart desires, desired means that Shlomo built these other projects mostly to please himself, to gain fame. So God came the second time after the realization of Solomon's great wealth and in response to Solomon's prayerful petitions at the temple dedication ceremony. Now notice again it was at least 13 years after the temple dedication ceremony complete with Solomon's famous prayer that God came to tell Solomon he would grant those petitions. 13 years. One has to wonder if the king even remembered much about what he had asked of from God so many years earlier. I mean, that was an awfully long time of waiting to find out. Now, verse 3 is a little bit odd on the surface. Yehovah says that he has consecrated the temple and placed his name there. Now, why would Solomon need to have this repeated 13 or so years later? We're not told. I don't want to get into a big guessing game. However, likely after all these years, many trials had come and gone for Solomon. The Lord saw the need to reaffirm his commitment to the temple as a holy meeting place. And I also think that after all these years of priestly rituals and grand ceremonies, that perhaps Solomon needed to be gently reminded that it was Yehovah who consecrated this temple. Not Solomon. Not the priests. And in verses 4 through 9, we'll end up with this. The Lord conditions his blessing upon Israel, upon Solomon, with obedience to the Torah. And he finally threatens Israel with the terrible consequence of exile, of the temple being abandoned by Jehovah, becoming an eyesore, a monument to Israel's rebellion and their apostasy. If I were to give a subtitle 
to this short section. I'd call it Behavior Matters. There are four ifs presented to Solomon in this dream visitation from Yehovah. That is, these are the four conditions that God's continued kindness and blessing over Israel, and since this is concerning how Yehovah deals with Israel as a nation, as opposed to individual by individual, then as we've seen developed in God's word, the national condition from God's perspective is reflected in the national leadership. In this case, because Israel's a monarchy, the national leadership is a king, King Solomon. The four ifs are these. First, if Solomon lives in Jehovah's presence, this means being submissive to God, following in his ways. Second, if Solomon displays pureness of heart and uprightness, this means integrity, morality, based on God's definition of these traits. Third, if Solomon does what God commands. The idea is that Solomon doesn't passively pay lip service to the Torah, merely saying all the right things. It means to actually perform the deeds and works that the Father instructs him to do. Fourth, if Solomon keeps the statutes, ordinances, and commandments of God. This is speaking of the written laws and regulations as they're presented in the Torah. The Hebrew terms are chok, mishpat, and mitzvot. And the idea is that together these form all the rules of ritual purity, all the do's and don'ts, that define morality, the civil laws that define social justice, and the procedures for bringing about God's justice faithfully. If Solomon is faithful in all these things, then the Lord will ensure that a king will sit on Israel's throne that comes through Solomon's line. Now let's stop and remember here. David had many sons through many wives and concubines. Thus a number of family branches of David are now in existence. Much like Jehovah selected Aaron from the line of Levi to be the high priest, and then among Aaron's sons, the father ordained Eleazar to be the line from which further high priests would come, so it is for Solomon. But, for Solomon's line, to continue to supply Israel's king, not some other descendant of David, then Solomon has to keep those four conditions. Okay, we'll continue with chapter 9 next time.